Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And we are back with an all-new episode of Keep It. Um, I am in London. Ebenezer Scrooge Just, himself. I, I am drinking some tea right now. Oh, you I'm don't fucking say. Oh, my God. Just British live every life. cliche. Whatever you want to do, sweetie. I, first of all, I am actually drinking tea. They brought me tea to the studio, Lewis. Oh, my God. What what else are you gonna uh, do? Are you gonna uh, uh, are you gonna do the? Are you gonna sing Estelle lyrics? Probably. Okay. Uh, or Little Mix, Little Mix lyrics. Oh sure. Um, Rita Ora lyrics. True. Can I say something about Little Mix? It is they they are becoming the new uh, gay thing where if you don't like it, it is not like it's like Britney or something. Like you are ostracized if you aren't kind of in on them. So anyway, I'm afraid I'm afraid of Little Mix stands. I'm afraid. You should be ostracized. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, in case people haven't noticed, this episode is basically the Lewis and Ira Variety Hour. I'm calling into you from London. Also, the Lewis and Ira Variety Hour. We have tried pitching this to Oxygen so many times, and it's it's a hard no <laughs> every single time. I am sitting alone at a desk in L.A. like I'm Walter Cronkite. I'm just looking out at America and not out at <laughs> Ira or Kara. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm really sure that uh Kara's fans are going to miss her this week. Um please stay out of my Instagram comments uh, <laughs> about how much you miss her and you know, just in case you need some book recommendations, um Goosebumps, Welcome to Dead House, oh, please. Haunted Mask, Monster Blood. Monster Blood 2 is very good. Monster uh, Blood 3 is not that great. No, right. Uh, piano Calling Lessons Can Be Murder. very good one. Yeah, Piano Lessons what? Can Be Murder. Uh, uh, my Hairiest Adventure. Please. Yes. Night at one Day at Horrorland. Uh, night, at, night at Tower of... T- wait, is Terror Tower? Is that what that's called? Anyway. Yes, that's one set in good old London town. That's what, see? That's, that's the book recommendation they needed. That's the one my, my <laughs> third grade class was most obsessed with. This guy, Dan, he was brought it? it in. And Dan was very cute at the time. I don't know what happened to him after age of nine. but All right. Well, <laughs> uh, just to let everyone know, I came to London uh, thinking that I was going to score our best interview ever. I wrote a letter to Buckingham Palace. Uh, I said that I was a big fan of Suits. Mm-hmm. Thought Meghan Markle would respond in kind and say, "Oh my God, I'm such a big fan. I'm such a big fan of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why I'm imagining that she's speaking in a British accent now, um, but maybe she learned one. I, I, I think it. Yeah. No, that's but, right. It it comes really quickly, just like the one you've acquired, and will hopefully yes, dispose uh, well, of soon. Yeah, she. You know, she did not respond. You don't say. I I am flabbergasted. I also, you should have added something about I love people who did a cameo once on CSI NY or whatever she's been on. Who People who've been on Deal or No Deal twice. She was in the pilot of the 90210 reboot. Was she really? I saw that pilot. Yeah. She was the girl giving Ethan a blowjob in the car. Wow. 
her filmography anyway. remains the most fun to look through. It's just like one-offs and then this. Also, I find it very suspicious that Kara is not here and also Megan is not here. Has anyone ever seen them in the same room together? No. <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't know where you're going with that, but I think we should just stop in our tracks and then move right ahead. All right. Well, while I was here, I managed to talk to uh, writer, producer, and singer Emily K. So rad. And so I will have an interview with him coming up later in this episode. And Lewis and I are going to talk about Sean Mendez and a bunch of other gay shit. Yeah. No, I think it's actually a, an astoundingly gay episode. So, like, if you were, if you're here for the only the Kara shit, like, I apologize because I think we're going to talk about favorite poppers flavors. I'm a I'm a hard blue boy. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> Uh, John Lovett tried to get into the studio, and we didn't let him in. We said, sorry, this is a gay episode. (laughs) Oh, wow. You think he's like, he's like in the penalty box of gayness? Well, by the way, (laughs) I mean, when you're wearing, when he does these live shows wearing his like swim trunks or whatever, sometimes I'm like, you can't just, you can't just gay it up and then be all swim trunkity. Swim trunks? That's his, that's his vibe. He'll wear like a tuxedo t-shirt and just some board shorts. (laughs) All right. Uh. When we're back, we're going to talk about Amanda Bynes. Lewis. Yes. Amanda Bynes is back. I am very shocked. She is quite back and looking just lovely. Yeah. After announcing her retirement from acting on Twitter in 2010, and having a series of very public arrests and troubling Twitter rants. Mm-hmm. Troubling's one word for it. Uh, Amanda is now back and healthy and sober, uh, sharing her story with Paper Magazine. The interview is the first glimpse she's sort of given us into what led to her downfall a few years ago before she had run-ins with the law and drug abuse. Uh, and now she's ready to be back on the acting scene. What do you think? I guess I've always considered myself a fan of Amanda Bynes, but then when I saw this with like the photo spread and like the quotes that seemed reassuring and uh, uh, optimistic that I am really rooting for her. It's a little bit like when that podcast Finding Richard Simmons came out, like Mm -hmm. growing up, you know, I had seen those videos like I had done the pony to Martha and the Vandellas along with him. But then when that podcast happened, it occurred to me, there is no other Richard Simmons. And there's like a a hole in my soul from where he used to, you know, exist and do the pony. Amanda Bynes is sort of a similar situation where she always had a specific comedy vibe that was broad, but also like coldly sassy. And I've really, really missed that. And uh, I don't even remember the last movie I saw her in, you know. Plus, there were her workout videos. So. <laughs> sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I lost so many calories to that. Doing the Soul Train <laughs> line to her moves. Yeah. Uh, sweating to the top 40 was hers. Oh, yes. Like. Sweating to the now yeah. six. Yeah, right. So you liked the profile. Uh, I thought it gave her a, a chance to kind of explain herself. Did you not like it? I found it very weird. So here's my thing. I've always liked Amanda. Mm-hmm. But... I feel like the profile itself was sort of, mm, I mean, no shade, poorly written. Uh-huh. Uh, I guess that's not really shade. That's just a criticism. I thought it was like more of a puff piece. It didn't really get into anything. I mean, 
it it keeps talking about her drug use, and the majority of the drug use they talk about is her smoking weed a lot. And I'm like, sis, smoking weed wasn't making you hop on Twitter and tell Rihanna right. that Chris Brown beat her because she wasn't pretty enough. Right. You know? yeah, yeah, it, like, it, yeah, it wasn't critical enough, especially, yeah. If marijuana's only involved, I mean, everybody I know should be, I guess, just saying the most vile things of all time. Right. Adderall as well. I feel like a lot of the real problems that she had, a lot of the real sort of vile things that she said on Twitter were glossed over. There's that paragraph where it's like, mm, she didn't really go into further detail. I'm like, well, did you ask her? Yeah, right. We have the details. You you have them. <laughs> you, you, you're the interviewer. Ask her about the Rihanna tweet. Ask her about the other time she just tweeted like, the n-word callously you right, know? right i really didn't think that she sort of answered for anything and it was sort of just you know don't do adderall and don't smoke weed and everything will be fine i think that there were also a lot of mental health issues at play during that downfall i mean we all remember it and it seemed really dark a lot of the times and the photos she was uploading and not once in the interview did she talk about seeing a therapist. Right. Yes. No, I mean, it, it, I remember at the time it, it feeling like, when will this end? Like, she clearly has nobody managing her. I Like, I wish, I wish in a way she had talked more about how isolated she must have been, because clearly no one was over her shoulder the way, you know, celebrities are usually and should probably be wrangled you know no that is terribly grim especially since she did give a quote talking about how much she regretted saying certain things and with enough context from the person writing the piece that could have actually covered some of the things you're talking about like maybe even the interviewer asked her about you know the rihanna tweets whatever but just didn't write about it in the piece but of course i don't know based on what was written yeah, because it's, you know, it's like, I'm really ashamed and embarrassed with the things I said. I can't turn back time. If I could, I would. And I'm sorry to whoever I hurt and whoever I lied about because it truly eats away at me. You know, when someone gives an apology and they're like, I'm sorry to whoever <laughs> I hurt. I'm like, girl, you could have kept that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just any random person, not the specific ones I mentioned by name. <laughs> and that was when we discovered that Rihanna might either is a comedy genius or hired a clapback correspondent who does a does brilliant work because that was the person who amanda Bynes was the one who inspired her to say this is what happens when they can cancel intervention right yes <laughs> one of the great twitter moments uh, that's why we have twitter ladies and gentlemen that was the height of rihanna being the funniest person on twitter now i'm worried that ariana has taken the handle like she'll she'll fly down in your instagram comments and just with one devastating lowercase remark like, let you know she's the funny one. <laughs> True. I mean, I'm glad Ariana is taking up that mantle, though. I think she's funny. Yes. To me, that's arguably the thing she, I don't want to say does best. She has, like, a, a great voice or whatever. But she's more distinct to me as a personality than as a recording artist. I will say that. Uh, well, I really love her vocals, and I think Ariana's great. But I think that she really started coming in her own as a pop star once people started realizing the breadth of her personality. It's funny right. because looking back on her licking that donut and saying, like, I hate America, you were sort of like, back then it was like, 
oh, is this a pop star having a breakdown or being like a bitch? And like now in retrospect, I'm like, oh, she was just being funny. Right. Yes. Oh, she was just doing the right thing. Sometimes donuts are lookable. Sorry. I mean, I didn't invent that. They just look that appetizing. You know what I'm saying? Also, who's loving America right now? <laughs> right. Oh, she was ahead of the curve. She was the first person to question America. Yeah. Queen of skepticism. <laughs> uh, what's interesting about this profile too is she does touch on a lot of the body issues that she had which is the stuff that really sort of spoke to me the most talking about how she hated seeing herself as a boy when she did she's the man how when she would see seeds back in easy a she thought that she looked bigger and she was partly taking adderall so that she could lose weight also that was kind of heartbreaking to me because she's the man. I think anybody who has seen that movie would consider it a pretty underrated slice of, you know, broad cinema in the late 2000s. And especially since she's so bothered by her appearance. But clearly, the movie wouldn't be funny if she didn't look bizarre. You know what I mean? So I, I, I just right. want to sympathetically say to her, no, but you look correct for the part. You know, it's it's sort of like um, Tootsie or something like that's not. Of course, it's slightly off kilter. You know, it needs to be in order for the movie to work. I feel like I really would have wanted to touch more on that stuff. But once again, the piece didn't really go deep. In contrast with the Lena Dunham profile in The Cut, written by Allison Davis, who I love. She's a great writer. I thought that profile was fantastic. And also, I mean, Lena Dunham, just in general, is, of course, infinitely quotable. For some reason, like, everything she says sticks with me in a way, like the particular way she words it, too. So her personality, again, came through. Not that I really needed Allison, another. Are both of your parents black? <laughs> right. Uh, uh, not that I needed another kind of think PC profile on Lena Dunham. I do feel like I've we've explored her personality enough. That said, this is the best one of her I've ever read. Well, yes, I feel like this one really went further than the other pieces, specifically because Allison chose to focus less on the Jack Antonoff breakup and more on the disillusion of her friendship with Jenny Conner. Right, which is a sort of puzzling thing we haven't inspected before because they obviously created, I mean, one of the most distinct TV shows of the past 10 years. It's always interesting, the public discourse about Lena Dunham, because I feel like it's conducted mainly by people who did not watch Girls, because there's this whole other side to Lena Dunham as a personality that we're sort of fixated on. But um, if we could inject well, more yeah, people into the conversation the that... who like actually saw Girls, I would appreciate that, because that show has a lot going for it, and a lot to criticize. Well, yeah, I mean, you, know. you forget the fact that it was on HBO, you know, and its ratings weren't huge. No. So the majority of the people who talk about Lena Dunham online were not watching Girls. Right, that was a show that subsisted on kind of uh, prestige word of mouth, really. You know, it wasn't about being a rating sensation, you know, the way I guess now everything else on HBO is. Well, no, I sort of even read this piece about uh, how Mad Men sort of became this cultural phenomenon. And, you know, like Banana Republic was selling Mad Men-style clothes, and there was Mad Men everything and Mad Men references on things. But Mad Men's ratings on AMC weren't high enough that you would expect a bunch of Americans were sitting around watching this show. Right, right, right. Um, so it's interesting how things sort of permeate the culture when the majority of Americans aren't watching it, but they're aware of it. And also, it does now feel to me like the legacy of girls is launching Adam Driver, who just, we haven't really thought about it. We Not that he's not a very good actor. You haven't seen the movie 
Patterson. He's really great in that. But anyway, he just gets to do whatever he wants now. And I can't say the same thing uh, about, you know, Zosha Mamet. I can't say the same thing about, you know, uh, uh, Jemima Kirk. You know, just mm-hmm. Adam, Adam Driver wins. That's the takeaway from Girls. Adam Driver, ugh. I, I'm i disgusted with myself that in the movie Black Klansman, the main takeaway from that movie was Wow, Adam Driver was really hot pretending to be a member of the KKK. Oh, that is too bad that you got that takeaway. I didn't have the same one, personally. but um... I love the movie, actually, but I couldn't stop thinking about Adam Driver after the movie. Mostly because, you know, he was also the character who had the most to do. When you're pretending to be in the KKK in the story... you know, you're sort of getting a bigger arc than everyone else. That's kind of true. It's sort of like uh, what uh, Sarah Paulson in 12 Years a Slave. Just, wow, evil really comes across on the big screen. Like, uh, you really take it in. Anyway, any other burning things you want to say about Amanda Bynes? Yeah, well, I just want to say this. First of all, it is actually astounding how long we have known who Amanda Bynes is. Because I remember when she premiered on All That, which was, I believe, the third season. And I was, of course, very skeptical because she was taking the place of one Angelique Bates, who at the time I thought was like the breakout like kook of the show. Where the fuck is Angelique Bates? Come back to us. I want do uh, what's that? Is that were they called Barry and Mary with with Keenan? Yes, guys, her it was funny. Keenan Thompson, their um, their cooking show, so funny, chocolate all over their faces, comedy. Yes. I mean, and you need it explained. Of, when she left, they got rid of it. So and then we had just more of like Keenan Thompson doing like uh, Pierre Escargot, right? And also, I mean, like of course they they relied on the uh, the Gilda Radner level strength of Lori Beth Denberg, which which kept me into the show. But mm-hmm. Amanda Bynes uh, on that show, I thought she was too broad at first, and then like she became a fixture due to the segment Ask Ashley, which actually holds up as a bit. It does hold up. I feel like Ask Ashley is how she got the Amanda show. Yes. Uh, Ask Ashley was brilliant, and it was really funny because I did think that a lot of times all that was too broad, and, you know, I mean, obviously it was for kids, Um, you know, so it wasn't going to give you, like, searing cultural commentary. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's funny that I thought it was too broad as a child. Thinking, <laughs> mm, I'm really not feeling this. Uh, <laughs> These adults but, are tryhards. Uh, yeah. You know, I felt like it got zanier as the show went on. And I really, yeah, did like those earlier seasons with, you know, Angelique Bates, uh, with Josh Server yep. before he sort of became wacky. Uh, I feel like once Danny Tamborelli like joined the show, it just became like cartoon characters. No, because Danny Tamborelli, oh, ready for this? He was too. It, it was like a kid's Belushi, just like I'm constantly <laughs> exploding. I have a violent energy, which you should watch out for. And I'm, I'm, and did he not take over like vital information from Lori Beth Denberg? Is that he right? He did. Absolutely unacceptable. I mean, that's like a drop from Tina Fey to Colin Jost at the Weekend Update Colin desk. Jost. No, no way. Danny Tamborelli was the Colin Jost of our youth. Oh, my God. I'm bursting into tears right now, realizing how true this <laughs> is. However, he was a good panelist on Figure It Out on Nickelodeon, which is a very underrated game show and works really well. They should reboot it. You know, we could spend an entire hour talking about how much I love Summer Sanders. Oh, please. But... By the way, I can't get over how when she was on that show, because she was always dressed like a substitute teacher. She was like 22 years old as the host of that, but felt 
She ha- she had the the gravitas of a forty one year old. I felt like when we were kids, though, every adult seemed like they were forty. That's true, especially when they're wearing that kind of denim skirt. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Coming up next, he's written for Beyonce. He's written for Madonna. He's written for Little Mix, and now he's writing for himself. I'm gonna sit down with London-based singer and writer and producer Emily K. Keep It is brought to you by Hinge. Hinge is the dating app designed to be deleted. If you're really good at it, that is. I've actually met several really good friends through Hinge. I've used it, I can't believe this, over a decade now. Woof, what a life I've had. Well, you know what they've added within a decade of us being on Hinge is their new LGBTQIA plus prompts, which are designed to help queer daters better connect based on similarities, interests, and compatibility. Hinge Prompts helps you show off your full personality and connect with someone who appreciates you. Plus, these prompts were created in collaboration with GLAAD, so they are by the people, for the people. Some of the prompts are, the first time I knew I was gay was, mm, I was literally in the act of being gay, like hooking up with somebody when I admitted it. (laughs) Denial is strong and hard in the Catholic Midwest. Mine was Tom Cruise's Vanity Fair cover, the shirtless one. You just turned to an imaginary camera and said, I'm gay. Yeah. I broke the fourth wall. <laughs> You're like Fleabag. Other prompts include, I feel proudest of who I am when. It feels affirming when others, blank. I connect to my community by, I wish I could tell the younger version of myself. I'm going to say, whenever I watch that in a drag race semifinal, when they're like, if I could talk to my younger self, I would say, I would be like, girl, get tighter clothes. I mean, what's going on with what you're wearing? You look like you're in the X Games. Other prompts include, my chosen family is the best at, and gender euphoria looks like. Download Hinge and show off your full self using their LGBTQIA plus prompts today. Then find someone worth deleting the app for. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Keep It is brought to you by Wondery's podcast. The Big Flop. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. I was there. I remember. 
There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children, like Dance Moms, the infamous Lifetime Network show where the studio owners screamed at children and their moms over several seasons. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Mm, they recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Well, we know that someone created the beast known as Jojo Siwa. <laughs> you think we see the, the, the lab workings that created Jojo Siwa? <laughs> yeah. One pigtail, two pigtails. Uh, and Chemical X. <laughs> Abby's biggest misstep actually wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Well, follow The Big Flop wherever you get your podcasts. I am here with my friend Uzo. However, <laughs> the world knows you as Emini K. Yeah. Yes, that is your pop star name. Your, my alias. Your nom diplôme. My, P, my PKA. <laughs> Where did that come from? It's my surname. Okay. So my surname is Emini K. Mm -hmm. And it's spelled E-M-E-N-I-K-E. -E. Mm-hmm. And then I just abbreviated it, and because someone at, at school told me your name sounds like the four letters M and E K, I was like, sounds like a stage name to me. So <laughs> <laughs> I just went, I just kind of just went with it to be honest, and that was me. That's just been me for like. How old were you? Were you were you as old as Mariah Carey was when she came up with "Me, I Am Mariah," the elusive Shantou? Well, <laughs> stop. <laughs> I, you know what? I was in school, so I was like 13, okay. like 13, 12, 13. And, you know, I'd always wanted to do music. So mm -hmm. it was uh, the only thing I'd ever wanted to do. So it then was just my kind of like one track mind. And it is great for keeping people who do not know you are an R&B singer. You are a producer of some of the best pop that we have ever heard. Um, Thank you. Yes, no, like, <laughs> you just worked on Little Mix's new album. Um, <laughs> if anybody in America knows who they are. They know uh, them. They know who they are. They know Black Magic. I want them to know them more. I stand Little Mix. Uh, Little great. Mix is a pop girl group. They opened for Ariana on her last tour, Dangerous Woman, which yeah. is how I saw them perform live. Uh, but Black Magic was a hit in the U.S., so... Well, I think they And shout out to my ex. Yes. Yeah. They are... I mean, listen, everyone knows what's up with Little Mix. They're extremely talented, mm -hmm. and they... I, I really enjoy working with them. I love them as people. Yeah. And, uh... You know, I think it's just all about, like, people kind of just, like, warming up to them. It takes a while, and it's like... To break America is such a different beast, you know? Mm -hmm. They've managed to really solidify themselves as, as a solid girl group in this yeah. country. Well, let's so. talk about that because, like, yes, you've worked on Hold Up by Beyonce. Yeah. You have worked on Madonna songs, you know, and so it's like, now you've released your own album this yeah. year. And Language, I think it's a great album. Thank you. Yes. And so how do you, how do you even break that U.S. market when you're also, like, trying to break the market over here? You know, I mean, to talk about another British artist like 
Rita Ora's album just came out. Mm-hmm. And people in America, like, to her, this was her first album that ever came out. And they well, have yeah. no idea that, like, she had a career here in the UK. It's hard. It's really, really hard. Like, because, you know, you're dealing with, you know, we sometimes we can think about the duality of UK and US, but they are different. Mm-hmm. There's different tastes. There's different... Uh, choices musically that everyone thinks you're like the Spice Girls because they were big well, yeah, in the US but, but like, even then they only had like one number one hit in the US but they had like an empire you know mm-hmm. what I mean it was so much more than just the music with them there was like the personalities the, sh- the touring yeah all of that and I don't know it's just it's just a different time mm-hmm. you know what I mean and I think like you know I, if I was in their position where I was like really successful in Europe, was very, was able to tour and was able to get my music out there and make the music I love. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd be, I'd never want US success to make me feel like I'm less than. Right, and you even have US artists like Kelly Rowland and people who have bigger, you know, solo success. Kelly Rowland has bigger solo success in the UK than she has in the US. Yeah, Anastasia, uh, she didn't, I don't, I don't recall her having many big hits in America, but like, a lot of her like biggest hits were here in Europe. Mm-hmm. So and so and Khalees as well. Yeah, you know, like there's artists who just stand Khalees. Yeah, but when you talk about Khalees, you know, like people only know those early like specific songs like Milkshake and stuff. I'm like, she had so many records. Oh my god, it's just so successful over here. She's an amazing recording artist. I really rate Khalees and everything she did with Pharrell and like all that stuff. But there's someone that just works sometimes and it's it's different for different territories. Well, so what does that tell you about, you know, the UK and how it sort of has embraced a lot of those, like, black artists more than you would say America has? Uh, I mean, we're dealing, that's a different conversation. Yeah. Only because, right? For instance, LMA, right? Yes. So, Boot Up is this big hit in America. It's one of the biggest R&B songs of the year. Yeah. It didn't do anything in the UK. Okay. It didn't do a thing. <laughs> As in, it was literally, you know, and it's not even because it's a bad song, because it's an amazing song. The second I heard Boot Up, it's a great song. But the UK don't support R&B. I, okay. don't, I don't consider myself an R&B singer. And you're a pop singer. I'm... You're an everything singer. I'm a pop artist. Yeah. I make pop music. I have an R&B voice. Mm-hmm. But I make pop music mm-hmm. but there's artists who make R&B music like Ella and yeah. like uh, Tiana Major 9 and Ray mm-hmm. Black and uh, you know there's people who make R&B mm-hmm. they don't get the same spotlight as maybe the pop girls just because the UK has never uh, recently hasn't really embraced R&B the kind of black music that UK embraces is like the hip hop side, like grime or, okay. or Afro swing or anything like that, that is more. And it makes sense that the Khalees and like Kelly Rowland stuff that did hit over here, that was like Neptune's produced, like David Guetta, the, you know? The, it was like, more the, the Eurocentric stuff, it was more yeah. the poppy stuff. Like, uh, you know, with Khalees, it was different because Khalees just made like an amazing album and yeah. like the whole Tasty album was great. And I don't know what you guys were drinking or smoking and, <laughs> and let that flop over there but like did Tasty flop? well the singles didn't pop it all hits here uh, in public Millionaire Millionaire is still my shit to this day so what happened? I don't know did you buy the CD single? I did buy the CD 
I bought the CD. Did your friends buy the CD? You know, it's white. It's white people. <laughs> it's white people. <laughs> it's just like the elections. You know, it's like it's like when you're like, why did Ariana Grande's Into You get to number one? Why did it just peak like yeah. at three or something? It's because you need straight white people to yeah. be buying the music. It's true. It's very true. <laughs> Some points are made. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Um, well, and you also are, you know, a black gay artist as well, you know? And yeah. so that brings its whole other bag of, you know, trying to break any market. Um, it seems like, you know, we're getting an influx of, you know, newer queer artists who are just sort of doing their thing mm-hmm. in America, and especially, you know, male pop stars. But it also seems, you know, like it's, it's you. It's um. It's Ollie from mm. Years and Years. It's Troye Sivan. They, they're they're foreigners. You know. It's not. They're not U.S. queer artists. No. I mean, I, hey. I think my my lens on it is different than everyone else's. As mm-hmm. far as like, you know, I'm very much doing something that's very tailored for me. Yes. And like I. I love what everyone is doing. I love being a part of this movement, mm-hmm. as people are calling it, the 2018. Yes, 2018. 2018, <laughs> we are here. And yes. I guess, I don't know, I think it's just... Um, well, yours is so different from me, too, because, you know, language just has sort of that, like, 90s, early 2000s R&B flavor to it, which is, you know, different from what the other girls are doing. Well, yeah, it's just what I like. Yeah. You know I mean, and everyone's doing what they like, and I think... With- I'm in your studio right now, by the way. <laughs> uh, I'm recording this in your studio, and there is Mariah everywhere. There is Mariah And, like, everywhere. I could just... I could feel the essence of her. And, like, yes, that is you, you know? <laughs> I, th- but I think it's just because, like, you know... Uh, my my taste, I grew up with loads of 90s R&B. I listened to all of that. I grew up with all, like, you know, Montel Jordan and Mariah and Whitney and... Uh, all the like the sangers mm-hmm. and, and then I grew up around like just like teen pop and all of that so it's just a blend of everything I grew up listening to and uh, you know I, it's because I'm not doing like I'm not being like the edgy like off kilter vibe it's not it's never been something I've been uh, never appealed to me like I've always ever wanted to be like a pop and like make fun colorful music videos and yeah. you know make pop music um but then embracing like both the queer side of it and keeping it still like, you know, I'm a black man, I love R&B, I love having influences of that in there. Mm-hmm. So it's just been a mesh of all those things. Yeah, I mean, speaking of Miss Mariah, we were listening the other day to Caution, yeah. which is an amazing album. It's um, really good. And like, it's getting great reviews, but then, you know, it didn't chart as high as it should have in the U.S. when it debuted. And a lot of people are like, you know, should Mariah stick to her pop era? Which sort of, you know, makes you think, like, when people call it that pop era, I think they ignore the R&B and, like, hip-hop influences that were even in that pop music. I think with Mariah, like, I think that's really stupid to say because Mm -hmm. I think, actually, it's not about that with Mariah. Like, Mm -hmm. Mariah's been doing this for 30 years. Yeah. She has nothing to prove anymore like she, number one billboard hits well this is the thing not everybody has that like <laughs> you know like she she's done all that she's surpassed any, everything that any of these new girls can do now mm-hmm. she's done that she sold hard copy records yeah. you know what I mean not streaming not streams hard like, copy people records went people went store. out of their house to get her records she's done that 
that has been solidified. Her her foundation is there. So now she can make the music whatever she wants to. And also with the pop thing, like, yeah, she she's always made R&B music. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, she's never been, like, a straight pop girl. Right. Vision of Love is Vision R&B. Vision of Love is not a pop record. Yeah. It's uh, not. It's, it was never a pop record. Mm-hmm. Vision of Love, if anything, Hero is the only pop record I can really think of. Yeah. And everything else, like Dream Love is a hip hop record, mm-hmm. <laughs> fantasy. Yeah, and she was the she got ODB on that, and yeah. like was the first person really getting people to put hip hop artists on track. I mean, would you call Emotions pop? No, it's R and B. It's an R and B record. Yeah, you know, like I don't know. People are being. I think people. It's th- weird because for her, it has a pop flavor, and it's sort of. I feel like if anything Whitney opened the door for her mm. to do that because he, like early in Whitney's career you know black people in America were sort of like mm, she's doing a little too much pop for us you know thinking she's like better than black people yeah. but once those songs became hits and we're sort of like oh yes I want to dance with somebody we want it then it opened the door for Mariah you know to well, blend those genres I don't know if Mariah ever went that pop though because mm-hmm. I want to dance somebody is arguably more pop than really anything Mariah's done. Mm-hmm. Like, and Mariah always wrote her and stuff. Yeah. So I guess she was always in control of how pop it went. Yeah. And I think Whitney was just down to sing a song and she sounded amazing when I went out with somebody. Of course. But it's like a pop record. Yeah. And it's no wonder why, I guess, like, at the time, like, the black community weren't really with the shits. Uh-huh. So, but I, you know... I grew up with Whitney in the sense that, like, my mom had all the vinyls. Yes. All of them. Like, <laughs> everyone. She had the the one where she had, like, the buzz cut. The, yes. the first album. The Whitney album. The body with buzz. You good, with You Give Good Love. Yes. A cut. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Um, the Bodyguard soundtrack, Preacher's Wife. Mm-hmm. Wayne Tech's Hell. My Love Is Your Love. Yeah. Just Whitney and I Look To You. Mm-hmm. But she didn't get the Christmas album. Yeah. I don't okay. think she knew about that one. <laughs> Well, talking about communities, then, I guess, like, where do you feel like the most of your support as an artist comes from? Especially in this social media age where, you know, there are people sort of in every country who are just sort of, like, feeling your vibe. Uh, I don't know. You know what? I think, like, it's really more, more than anything, it's just, uh... Uh, I, don't, I, I can never know what, like, my fan base is or, like, mm-hmm. my core demographic is. Like, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. But I know, like, especially with this record, with, with the stuff I've put out, like, it's definitely been more the uh, gay community at large and also just, like, also black gay community in the sense that they feel... Uh, I've gotten so many messages from people just, like, feeling really represented. Mm-hmm. And, well, like, I first, like, really discovered your music with Tongue. Um, And I felt, like, the vibe in that song, you know, just the idea of, you know, like, you know, you want to say something, but you can't say it. Mm. Um, And I think the video describes that perfectly, too. You know, and it was just, it's so, every time I was at a pregame, I would put (laughs) your video on, and the white gays would, in L.A., would love it. And they'd be like, who is this? You know, because it's like, it was just so beautiful to see a music video you know, with black gay men in it, just dancing, having fun, and the music is good, and it, you know, didn't feel like, um, it didn't feel ratch, it didn't feel like cheap, <laughs> not, not ratch, not like I'm being, you know, uh, classes. It just, it, I, feel, I feel ratch in the sense of like, the budget was there. 
Yeah. You know, it's like you put the work into it, you know? Definitely had a budget. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think, um, you know, I, you know, it was really cool doing that video, only because I, when I Oh my started, God, I'm going to get dragged. Well, no, I know. <laughs> no, for real, though. Like, it's, I, I fully, though, I wanted it to be tasteful. And I mm-hmm. think um, when I finished the album, last, literally, like, this time last year, I'd finished the album. Mm-hmm. And I played it to the label, and they wanted Tongue as the first single. And I was like, great, I love that song. It's great, let's go for it. And then I was just like, with the video, I really want to be able to, uh, you know, because we started conceptualizing the album cover and, and things like that. We did the video the week after the album shoot. And it was just about, like, really embracing just uh, the different layers of black masculinity and really having fun with it because I didn't really have any template on on how f- how to do it. All mm-hmm. I knew is that I wanted to feel really, like... Mm-hmm. Uh, normal, yeah. You know what I mean. I didn't want it to feel like a oh look at this. I I wanted it to look like it was just like a mood, and you're entering this world that way. Yeah. It's completely normal to feel this way. It was moody. It was great, and you know I think I really responded to it finding it. You know, so soon after Moonlight, I just think America right now in the world, you know, is in this big yeah. conversation about black masculinity and where we go from here and different ways that we can represent it than we have before. So you know I'm really proud of the work that you're doing. Well, and I want everybody who listens to Keep It to <laughs> listen to Language by M-N-E-K. It's spelled just how it sounds. It um, listen to Language on Spotify, iTunes. Actually, you know what? We need the audience to buy the album. Buy the, we need the audience to buy the album. <laughs> to quote Brandy to quote on 106 and Park. Oh, yeah. Out of pocket. Did anyone tell her that Dorbin <laughs> For people who don't know, Brandy was on 106 and Park on BT back in the day when her album came out. What was the album? It was Human? Was it Human? Yeah, I think it was Human. Was the Human album was the one after. The it was 11 one. Yeah, it was it, it was one of those albums, but they were like everyone in the audience is getting a free copy of Brandy's album and she literally freaked out she and was like, but we need the audience to buy, buy the, the album. album. <laughs> yeah. It's true though. I mean but maybe then uh, I don't know. BT probably bought those copies. Yeah, but also, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. How did you just say that? That's so crazy. It's so funny. Uh, anyway, thank you so much for inviting me to your studio while I'm here in London. This was a great replacement for Meghan Markle, who would not return my phone calls. She didn't. Uh, no. I showed up at Buckingham and was like, "I have a podcast. Will you be on it?" And the guards. <laughs> we were telling the me, guards were like, "Um, what?" Because because we, we were talking last night and you were saying like, "I was like, where are you staying?" And you go at the palace, <laughs> the Rubens at the palace, which like, is across from Buckingham. You like the palace? <laughs> I was like, "Don't be shy. What what palace? <laughs> like, what, what palace? No, it's, it's totally fine. You can just." <laughs> Sweaty. <laughs> Megan, where you at? To be honest, <laughs> show your face. Don't be shy. Coming up next, Lewis and I take this episode further into season five of Queer's Fault. <laughs> There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. 
which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. Imagine bold, naturally aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger, eating handfuls of thick-cut cheddar shreds straight from the bag, taking a bite out of an irresistibly bold block of extra sharp cheddar cheese. <sighs> we know you want to get back to streaming, but wasn't it nice to daydream about cheese for a bit? Tillamook cheddar, extraordinary dairy. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. <laughs> Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives have always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the black experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Lewis. Uh-huh. It's time to talk about Sean Mendes. Woo! I mean, I'm not like a super fan or anything. He seems like a nice guy. I am a fan who knows like two of his songs. So I will fully admit me being a fan is because he's cute. I'm also just baffled geographically by the song Lost in Japan. Where is he and where is he flying into? Why? He, he, he's talking about Japan as if he can get there in about 20 minutes. So he's on, like, <laughs> the Kamchatka Peninsula? I have no idea. <laughs> well, this week, Sean Mendez had a cover story for Rolling Stone magazine, and the usually reserved pop star revealed that the rampant speculation regarding his sexuality on the internet has caused him a lot of stress and anxiety. One particular quote, he said, I'd like to say I don't care about it, but that's not true. In the back of my heart, I feel like I need to go be seen with someone, like a girl, in public to prove to people that I'm not gay. And even though in my heart I know it's not a bad thing, still a piece of me thinks that it is, and I hate that side of me. Uh, I just want to <sighs> confirm to him that it is a bad thing, and I'm loving every minute of it. <laughs> so just just know All that, right. Sean. <laughs> uh, Lewis is the erotica era of Madonna level of gay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, my sex book will be coming out very soon. Look for the pictorial with Big Daddy Kane. I, I'm bedtime stories level. I feel like I'm just, I love an elegant tea. Sure. I love dressing up like a matador. Oh, yeah. You're co-written by Bjork some of the time. Yeah. Yes, and Babyface. That's right. And Dallas Austin. He's part of that. Yeah. 
Moving on. Sean. Sean Mendez. I've mentioned this on the show before. It was one of my keep it, I don't know, way back in episode 942 mm-hmm. of this damn show about the fact that I was tired of the gays making memes and jokes about his sexuality on the internet. Mostly because I found them annoying. Even if he was gay, you know, we spend so much time on the internet talking about how we should let people, you know, embrace their own journeys. And we were also very receptive this summer to Lucas Hedges's um, story about coming to terms with his sexuality that I just feel like the way that people treat Sean um, is kind of gross. Also, most of the jokes that people make about him aren't funny. Right. How many Sean Cody jokes can you make in one day? Right. He's a good-looking guy. Um, yeah, I think he, it's interesting because it's obviously not wrong to wonder if someone is gay, but to to speculate, that's a conversation you should have privately. And things like Twitter and Tumblr People mistake that for kind of private conversations they're having with friends and like-minded people, but obviously the entire internet can see it. And obviously, you know, certain memes, uh, ideas, thoughts, jokes pick up in a way you probably don't expect. Or if you're just a devious person in exactly the way you want. But um, you're right that people can sort of forget the fact that if you're just tweeting, you know, with the four regular people that you tweet with, uh, if one person retweets that, you know, I'm going to see it. You're going to see it. Um, other people on gay Twitter are going to see it. And so that can really like signal boost a tweet that you thought was meant only for, you know, your three friends. And I think that really speaks to the fact that uh, a lot of America's, you know, sort of gay community now has sort of been connected through social media, um, particularly in ways that, you know, used to be just like talking with your friends at right. a bar or something. Also, I think Sean Mendes in this interview is kind of being hard on himself when he says, um, I, I don't think being gay is a bad thing, and I, I hate the part of myself that thinks that. Well, I think what he's reacting to is that the people who make these jokes are kind of treating him like a constant joke who doesn't know he is a joke. You know, like, oh, look at this, you know, hot person trying to, like, woo women or whatever. Meanwhile, we all know he's this, this, and this. It's like, that is smug. That is, you know, condescending. And, uh, uh, you know, speaking as, like, a a gay guy, like, with other gay men, we have, like, a kind of conspiratorial tone amongst, amongst ourselves. Like, oh, we've seen it all. We know how it is. And that can, you know morph somewhat easily into condescension when you're talking about certain people and certain things. And uh, so I just, it just reminds me of when I was in high school, I remember specifically one time and I was closeted till I was like 17. I was hanging out with friends one day and just randomly, I have no idea what even provoked it. I said to one of my friends, do people ever ask you if I'm gay? And of course I had no, no idea that I was gay at the time. And they just go, oh yeah, we get that all the time. And then late, I did. I put it out of my mind. And then finally, I got home later. And I'm telling you, that is the closest I've ever had to a panic attack. Just knowing, you know, oh my God. you think you think to yourself that you're a self-aware person. You're in charge of who you are. And then when there's this other dialogue about you that feels, you know, um, um, mocking or that feels, you know, cruel or or, or just, you know, it, it's a discussion about you that you're not a part of, that you're not instigating. It is like devastating. So I. I right. And I, that happened to me, uh, you know, like someone who later became a best friend of mine um, and later a college roommate, uh, we started off literally 
hating each other uh, because he asked me if I was. Like, the first week of school uh, because some other people thought it would be funny to ask me. You know? Uh, right. And it's like, when you're worrying about that in a school environment, you have to imagine that for Sean Mendez, this is on a national scale. Yeah. A global scale, even. Oh, totally. And by the way, he's not old. He's somebody who's been famous since he was 16, and now I think he's 20. You know, so in a way, he's still... I mean, look, it's it's just a really petty conversation to have about somebody that could be harmful. I, I mean, like, if I were him, too, and I'm, you know, trying to be a musician or trying to be, you know, just successful, and people are focusing on the way I'm, like, hold, you know, sitting in a chair or, like talking with my hands i mean just you're trying to be yourself and people are are laughing at you being yourself you know it's just a sh- right. it's a he shocking about thing having a panic attack um you know one time because taylor swift uploaded like an instagram story of her putting makeup on him backstage like when they were hanging out once and just like realizing when he woke up the next morning like how many times people were going to analyze that and make jokes about it online. I definitely felt bad for him, particularly because, like you said, he is only 20. He started his career on Vine when he was a kid and sort of had this meteoric rise. And so it's like when you think about older celebrities who are sort of took a while to come to, her, to, come to terms with their sexuality or people who are still doing it now, um, you know, he's in this sort of state of arrested development, you know, he's surrounded by managers and agents and, you know, um, he's on tour and, you know, there's probably not a lot of time for him to just sit down and think about who he is right now. Also being 20, a lot of our friends still hadn't come out by then. So certainly no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, uh, and by the way, how many, I, I admire, I guess, the quotes he gave in Rolling Stone just because I think it's so touchy and difficult. We, we, you would mention Lucas Hedges earlier. He was just on Ellen and also previously gave a statement about, I guess, just his questioning his sexual orientation. And it's just so it's such a touchy uh, conversation to address as a celebrity when either one, you're figuring it out or two, trying to just explain like I'm being myself and like, you know, the time will come when, when, when I'll figure it out. You know, so I guess I just think it's a very awkward position to put someone in. And I uh, and look as a gay guy myself, you know, I, I think it took me a long time to get the language right about, you know, just what I think about uh, uh, self-loathing or, uh, uh, you know, homophobia or whatever. So I think it's I think it's sort of a, a tall order to get right. And, you know, I saw a lot of frustration sort of with this online two that I sort of want to address just from the fact that you know a lot of the conversation after this Rolling Stone piece immediately you know was like we need to protect Sean Mendez you know and uh you know leave Sean alone and I will say that I found that rhetoric um disingenuous very not surprising um you know because he is this cute white young pop star but you know it was sort of disheartening coming right on the tail of the um, sort of Dwight Howard sexual scandal. Oh, right. That sort of erupted over the weekend. Um, You know, a writer who's a gay male accused um, Dwight of 
sexual harassment and threatening his life. Masen Alige um, alleged that he was having some sort of sexual relationship with Dwight Howard um, and had a whole Twitter thread about it and alleged receipts. You know, this has since sort of been debunked, I guess so, by the Internet uh, because this person also tried to accuse um, rapper Playboy Cardi of a similar relationship about a year ago. But there was still the idea that for a bit this weekend, you know, people thought that Dwight Howard was in a gay relationship. And Alige also intimated that Dwight Howard was visiting transgender sex parties. And so a lot of the conversation was really sort of gross, you know, and like the transphobia jumped out. Um, And it was weird seeing how we talked about Dwight Howard, who's a person in a more masculine sort of um, role as a basketball player and being a black male, as opposed to us talking about, you know, Shawn Mendes, you know, a cute young boy that everyone's attracted to being gay. It's it's interesting thinking about the tone of the conversation with Shawn Mendes, too, because I think the feeling of pop music in... 2018 is one of like inclusion and queer positivity and stuff so it's almost like when people are talking about him there's a feeling of you know this is in a way us being accepting whereas when I think of the sports world I do think of them as very stunted when it comes to talking about sexuality so to spring I mean a conversation about transgender people you know and uh, sexuality on sports fans feels almost dangerous to me. I'm not saying I'm somebody who goes if I'm at a basketball game, I'm not feeling like my queer self is all I'm saying. Again, yeah, you know, I mean, I love a basketball game. Um, Do you? I find I that up. disturbing. What? Huh? You you Yes. I I mean, I believe you. I believe you. I just don't understand. I just think it's not an attractive court. I think the people are moving around in a sort of lanky way. <laughs> it's just not it's not it's not my game. Well, you know, I like the Lakers. I am upset that a friend of mine who I will not name um, has been going to multiple Lakers games with LeBron James uh, while I've been in Europe, and we were supposed to be going to them together, uh, but that's a story for another day. You're right. I mean, we haven't even really been able to have a real discussion about Kobe Bryant's past, you know, in the sort of Me Too era, you know? Um, Right, right. So I certainly didn't think that people are going to be able to have a reasonable adult conversation about Dwight Howard's sexuality. Right, right, right. Also, this writer you're talking about in the dubious past of accusing people of things, that is very scary. Certain people on the internet scare me. I know. Those are the things I sort of hate, you know, where it's like you have a whole Twitter thread, you know, accusing someone of something, and people start to take one thread as sort of truth on the internet. You know, it's the same way with, you know, the sort of Sean Mendez thing, you know, like if you do a threat defending him, you know, you'll have certain gays, you know, sort of pop into your DMs and be like, well, you know, I've heard that he actually is gay. And it's like, who have you heard this from? Right. No, it's never you firsthand with, knowledge. You weren't with him on tour. Right. You weren't lost in Tokyo with him. <laughs> no, it's also just the amount of times you think you hear a first-hand account of an actor who is secretly gay, and then you hear it from four other people, and you realize, oh, actually, rumors still persist. Like, we're still dumb human beings who believe we have a scoop when we don't. Right, and it's always usually generated from the same 
sort of story off of an idea that someone has. Yes. And also, by the way- There's still plenty of actors now that, I mean, like, if you ask some gay people in our friend circle, like, if they're gay, um, they might think they are. And it's like, these might be people that, you know, we actually know aren't. And there's really no proof that they are, but rumors and conjecture consists. Right. Also, there's a brilliant uh, Kathy Griffin bit from about 10 years ago where she talks about how whenever there is speculation about uh, a male star's sexuality, they are always hot. And she said, uh, she goes, you never hear somebody go, oh, honey, please tell me you've heard about Miss Jean Hackman, which is one of the great jokes. <laughs> yes, there's always sort of this wish fulfillment in it, too, right? You know, yeah, right, of someone course. was sort of like, uh, oh, like, oh, now I have a chance with um, Sean Mendez if he were actually gay. I'm like, bitch, you don't have a chance with Sean Mendez. Right. Did you see that? I think Todd Recall had kind of a weird tweet about that. He said something like, the point is I'm going to marry him now or whatever he said. And it's just, well, that's not the point. Let's not talk about, let's, let's, let, let's not get. First of uh, all, didn't Todd Recall, did, Todd Recall needs to worry about his choreography <laughs> and the fact that he just did an Instagram story about how his boyfriend was cheating on him when he was out of town. Like, bitch, how about you keep a man before you worry about trying to get Sean Mendez locked down? Wow, the Ricky Lake audience member jumped out. That was what that comment was. <laughs> I didn't realize he was that messy on Instagram. I guess I should inspect more closely. I mean, he's messy on Drag Race. No. <laughs> I mean, he's, he, he's a little obsessed with being uh, sassy and quotable on Drag Race and... I'll say it, that show has enough sassy quotable people, so. If I see one more hip-hop Disney video from him, I'm like, we have Lin-Manuel Miranda for a reason. (laughs) And I am literally in fear of Mary Poppins Returns because you know he's going to rhyme some shit with Poppins and I don't want to know what it is. Well, I've seen it. Oh, that's right, you did. Can you say things about it yet? I don't know what I can say about it. I will say that I enjoyed it. It's two hours and ten minutes long which is too fucking long, but then people also pointed out that the original movie was almost two and a half hours. Well, that's because we didn't understand how long movies should be back then. We had like the, all those David Lean movies that are 175 hours long. You know what I mean? But now we know no one wants to sit through a two an hour and 10 minute movie. And by the way, I just watched a movie that could arguably justify being two hours and 10 minutes long, which it was, which was The Hate You Give. And even then I'm like, cut off a half hour. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But no, I thought I thought the movie was quite good. I have not seen the original Mary Poppins in a minute, so I definitely kept trying to remember things that happened in the original movie and then being like, oh, that happened in Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Common mistake. But the, the important thing yeah. is Dick Van Dyke is up and spry in this movie, right? He is. He is a doll. Get- um, and there's another cameo that I will not reveal. Oh. Well, also, I, by the way, how has the internet not dragged out that picture of Meryl Streep's cameo, which is in the trailer for the movie. She looks She's so, so bananas. fucking good in the movie. Oh, she is? Way. Oh, that's amazing. Yes. I didn't know that. Honestly, it surpassed Fergie doing uh, Be Italian in the Rob Marshall oeuvre of um, insane musical performances. Uh, that's a high bar because that is definitely the high point of Nine, a movie that is lacking in high points. Yeah. All right. Have we talked about enough gay shit this week? I thought we did a pretty good gay job, which is a children's book yeah. I should write. A pretty good gay job. with <laughs> the, It's me as a, uh, as a painter on the cover. Yeah. Do you think Kara would recommend that book? 
Uh, no. By the way, I've decided what Kara is doing this week is just walking door to door telling people to keep it and then saying have a nice day. Like she's on the road doing yes. the work. She, she's, she's canvassing um, book recommendations, actually. Oh, good. We need that. Yeah. All right. When we're back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode, as usual. It's Keep It. There's only going to be two Keep It's this week. I feel, I feel we've underkept it this episode. I mean, I feel like there's plenty of things we could just like randomly say Keep It to. There should, we should write an Animaniac-style song of all the things that should be kept. But until we do that, what is your Keep It this week? Um, well, as you know... Uh, everybody, Oscar season is the only season that matters. Uh, Oscars are the only objects I know I love. Uh, I want people to have them. Actually, I only want women to have them. When men have an Oscar, it's like, I don't care about your emotions. You're not Octavia Spencer. This means nothing to me. However... What about gays with Oscars? Well, as we all know, there's only one, and it was Sam Smith. And he got it written to the Constitution that he's the only one who can ever win one. Goddamn. All the year's best movies come out uh, this time of year. And also, all the movies that want to be Oscar movies come out at this time of year and f- sometimes fail. And my keep of this week is to the movie Green Book, which stars Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali as a pair of unlikely pals in the 60s who go on a road trip. Mahershala Ali is a, a, a renowned pianist. Viggo Mortensen is his like tough-talking driver who is just basically assigned to Mahershala Ali. Oh, so they're us. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. I'm angry. Um, <laughs> here's the thing with Oscar movies. Usually I can find one thing to really like in a movie, no matter what, a performance, uh, cinematography, whatever, because, you know, these movies get the best people working on them. I can honestly say I did not like one single thing about this movie. The blindsidery of this movie, of somehow we're supposed to think it's novel, that Viggo Mortensen, who, you know, is the patriarch of like a a, a, a blue collar white family meeting Mahershala Ali, and we're supposed to be proud of him for being friends with him? Like, I don't really know what the takeaway of the movie is, other than it's based on a real story, kind of like The Blind Side, and that alone is supposed to justify its existence. Nothing about seeing these two people interact and be friendly is assuring to me. It's a movie about race for white people. And also, even Mahershala Ali's performance, he's giving me kind of like a Yul Brynner-type uptight performance, and I just don't find it very compelling. Viggo Mortensen is okay, but otherwise, it's just a movie like The Danish Girl, where I think it's an Oscar movie that wants to be about social issues and just comes up with nothing. So it's a big keep it there. Can I say that the the most of the conversation around Green Book is the fact that people may think it's not woke enough, uh, you know, because it's like, oh, my God, there's so much backlash about telling a black story. You know, the Green Book, which was a book created by African-Americans, you know, to let them know which cities were safe to travel to in the U.S., um, is being told through a white man's perspective. And I'm like, mm, maybe the movie's just bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. Is it just you know, lame? Yeah. You already have intrepid reporter Sasha Stone, uh, <laughs> who's a, uh, an awards blogger. Movie, yeah. Defending this movie to the death. Um, and I'm only mentioning her because literally every piece that she's written 
uh, about Green Book so far has been forwarded to me because she keeps harping on the fact that it's so hard for white people to make movies now because they're going to be accused of being racist, just like she was accused of being a racist last year by someone who she won't mention, but she's writing about me. Oh, wonderful. Well, also, I mean, what a tough... Because I didn't like Three Billboards, and she did. And if we all recall that drama, she said that she was surprised because the like National Association of Black Film Critics uh, like the movie Three Billboards. So naturally, all black people should like it. Ooh, I did um, fucking hate that movie. Uh, uh, also, that's such a weird tack to take. Like, white filmmakers, the she's saying the problem is they make a movie and then it gets produced and then it gets all these wonderful people attached and then it enters an award conversation and then it doesn't win enough awards or people don't like it enough it's like what like that's that's the complaint like uh, that seems like a very niche concern if they're in the conversation at all that's a privilege to have yeah right yeah um yeah i mean i've also a sideways keep it uh i've i've been a little annoyed with just the concept of you know like oscar season in general i love oscar season Mm -hmm. obviously But I wish that more Oscar movies, particularly a movie like Widows, weren't released during quote-unquote Oscar season just so that people would, you know, consider its um, Oscar chances and were maybe released at a time when the audience for that movie would actually go see it. I would say Widows is very much a blockbuster type movie. If you watch it, you know, it's, it's a classic heist film in a lot of ways. And it has a number of... Really excellent performances. This Elizabeth Debicki person is killing it. I love her. She's so fucking good. Yeah. Uh, She's great. The dog in the film deserves an Oscar. And Steve McQueen's directing is very good in this film, too. Like, it's a film that's sort of like, you know, sort of like Black Panther, sort of like Michelle Yeoh in Crazy Rich Asians. Like, just by virtue of existing, could have then entered the Oscar conversation. But I feel like this film was specifically put to come out at this time so that we would be talking about it as prestige and not as just like a commercial blockbuster film when it should have been a commercial blockbuster film first right. and then sparked Oscar conversation. Yeah, I definitely I think agree. That dumping a lot of movies that are sort of varying in genres um, all at once does a disservice to movies. Um And when we're always talking around Oscar season about the fact that a lot of America isn't watching the show because they haven't seen these fucking movies, maybe it's because these movies come out in L.A. and New York in November and December, and no one has had time to see them by the time the award show rolls around. Right, right, right. Also, I got to say about this movie, too, this is probably apparent from the trailer, but Viola Davis in this movie, I mean, you get all the Viola Davis vitamins and minerals. There's grit, vulnerability... Uh, a palpable sense of loss and conviction. So I'm just, if you want all the Viola Davis super nutrients in one place, you got to go see Widows. Uh, it's 15 seasons of How to Get Away with Murder in two hours. Right. And I believe we've actually had 35 seasons of that show at this point. So it's nice that we've condensed so many. <laughs> How do they keep getting away with it? <laughs> Shonda knows. Shonda knows. So my keep it is to... Everyone who has a birthday right now, oh. um, fuck Sagittarius season. Really? Tell me why. I don't understand this. Mostly because I'm a Leo. Likewise, sweetie. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, I hate every season that's not mine, but also because Leo's and Sagittarius's um, have a very good connection and rapport with one another. And the majority of my friends in Los Angeles, uh, my very close friends, are actually Sagittarius's. So December is just like a month full of me having to care about other people who aren't me. I have never felt more connected to you. What a deep concern that I hope you mine for decades and decades. Here's what I, Back to back to back. Right. Birthdays. Here, here, I feel like Leos are the shut up fives a ten is speaking of the Zodiac. And I'm happy to identify as one alongside my heroes, Madonna, Barack Obama, and Meghan Markle. And Elizabeth Hurley. Oh, you know what she was great at? She was the host of Project Catwalk in the UK, the, their version of Project Runway. Guys, she slayed. And by the way, she was funny in at least four movies. Bedazzled. She was great. Please. I remember it very well. And wasn't she in an Austin Powers movie? Yes, and she was perfectly cast. And also, never forget that uh, uh, safety pin dress she wore a couple years ago before that and became a huge star. I wish more people wore dresses made out of office supplies. Well, I think that's the end of our episode. Wow. I mean, we what we got from Sean Mendez to Elizabeth Hurley. So we really covered, I mean, if the, the rainbow jumped out. Well, thank you all for listening to the Lewis and Ira Variety Hour. Thanks again to M&EK for being on the show. Uh, oh, my God. Um, Lewis, Meghan Markle is here. She is. She is. Um, it's a good thing that we have so much more time in this episode. To oh. Talk to. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate (laughs) is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.